I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Where did you go when your eyes closed and you were cloaked in the ancient cold? How did we seem huddled around the hospital bed? Did we loom as figures do in dream? As your skin drained became Valium, a splinter of Whitehorn from your battle with a bush in the Shanagaree stood out in your thumb. Did your new feet take you beyond to fields of Elysia, or did you come back along Carabana Mountain where every rock knows your step? Did you have to go to a place unknown, where their friendly faces to welcome you, help you settle in? Did you recognize anyone? Did it take long to lose the web of scent, the honey smell of old hay, the whiff of wild mint, and the wet odour of the earth you turned every spring. Do you remember that voice and that soul? His name was John O'Donoghue, and quite apart from being an Irish poet and an ex-priest, he was the voice of the single most requested tapestry episode ever. John O'Donoghue was also a beautiful writer and a wildly eloquent partner in conversation. He used to say the West of Ireland shaped him as much as anything else ever did, and so much of his writing sprang from his beloved landscape in County Clare, the Burren. In this conversation, John O'Donoghue shares his poetry and soulful wisdom about what it means to live a good life and die a good death. John O'Donoghue died in his sleep in 2008. He was 52 years old. tell you a bit about John O'Donoghue's background, but if I were to say he has a PhD in philosophical theology, you might say, well, this is going to be deadly. So I'll tell you something else. He's a poet, a former priest, a beautiful writer, and an Irishman. And John O'Donoghue will tell you that the West of Ireland has shaped him as much as anything else ever has. O'Donoghue writes a lot about belonging. It matters to him because In his words, to belong is to bring together the two most fundamental parts of a life, being and longing. O'Donoghue is the best-selling author of Anamkara and Eternal Echoes. John O'Donoghue, welcome to Tapestry. Thank you very much, Mary. I would like to start with a question about where you grew up. 
You grew up in a very wild landscape in the west of Ireland. I know this because this is where my father grew up, the Burren. And you have written so eloquently about the land having been a kind of companion to you all your life long. How did the Burren shape you? Well, it's an amazing landscape, first of all. I mean, it's a stone, a limestone landscape. Uh, originally, it was covered in forest. Then when the first invaders came from the ocean, they began to cut back the forest and farmed it. And then the erosion took all the soil away from the stones. So what you've exposed there is a huge mystical landscape of white, grey limestone shapes, all of them like as if they were created by the mind of a surrealistic divinity. And I suppose when you grow up, the, the landscape surrounding you, certainly when you grow up on a farm, becomes the interior furniture of your spirit in a way. And this landscape uh, alerted me first to the eternal. Secondly, it was a landscape of the most intricate and complex intimacy. Thirdly, it was a landscape of huge endurance and solidity. And it was a landscape that um, really took your mind down to levels of subconscious belonging that only became explicit and apparent to you maybe in later years. What a lovely double-ended thing. I hear you saying it brought to mind the eternal, but very much also brought to mind the rock under your feet here and now. Absolutely. You, you were a Catholic priest for a time. I would like to hear about what drew you toward the priesthood and what led you away from it. I was a priest for 19 years and I suppose seven years studying, which is about 26 years of my life. And the best decision I ever made was to become a priest. And I became a priest because I couldn't help it. <laughs> I had to do it. Uh, I suppose like all vocations, it had the kind of integrity of inevitability in it. Ever since I was a child, my mind has always been shadowed by transience, by the sense of everything passing away. And when uh, in my teenage years I was thinking about what I do with my life, I wanted to do something that would be eternal, that would in some sense make the transient permanent in some way. And it struck me that priesthood was the, was the way to do that. And I loved being a priest. I loved the Eucharist particularly and the sacraments. And I loved my work with people. And um, it was an amazing, uh, an amazing adventure. Some of the most poignant and beautiful and substantial times of my life have been the times that I worked with people as a priest. Because as a priest, you are allowed in to the most intimate frontiers of people's souls, where they confront the eternal, where they confront death, where they confront emptiness, where they confront their own infinity and their own beauty. And it's a huge privilege. And um, I never really believed at all in clericalism and in the outer trappings of the clerical life. But the inner work of priesthood really fascinated me. And I did it from my heart and my soul. I'd say of all the times that I celebrated Mass, and I mean, I celebrated it every day, there were only two or three times 
that uh, I wasn't completely present and that the Eucharist didn't work because I thought it was an amazing thing. Now, why did I leave it? Do you know what? I, can I can I stop you for a absolutely. moment? But before you go on to why you've left it, I'm I'm going to ask you to tell me a story. You said something very tantalizing there a moment ago. That just the most poignant moments you can imagine. Do you remember an occasion or a person or a time when you were a priest? Is is there something that stays with you as as having been tremendously memorable or poignant or, or meaningful to you? Well, there is like one of the stories is um, the story of a friend of mine who was one of the travellers, the travelling people, and she was about 26 years of age. And I knew her and she had two children, a lovely husband. I was pregnant with a third child and uh, she got ill with leukaemia. But it seemed to be treatable and I used to visit her in hospital about once a week. And then one evening I came in to see her and I used to usually give her a hug and she said, don't hug me because I'm bleeding. And I knew then that something was wrong. And about uh, four or five nights later, her family one night in the middle of the night knocked on my door and they said they had got word that she was dying. So we all went into the hospital and I arrived into the room to her about two o'clock in the morning. And she put out her hand and she was wired up to all kinds of machines and oxygen on her and everything, the poor little pet. And she says to me, am I going to die? And I said, I don't know whether you're going to die or not, but when I know and if I know, I will tell you. So all her family came and about quarter past four in the morning, she said to me, will you open the window? And then something told me she was going to die. So I went out and I met a doctor and I said, what's the story? And he said, she will be dead by about 10 o'clock in the morning. So I went into her and I asked all the family to leave the room and I took her hand in my hand and I said to her, you're going to die. And she went into pure frozen panic because I think one of the most awful sentences that one ever will hear in one's life is the sentence, you are going to die. And uh, I knew her very well. So I really prayed from my heart and asked God to give me the words. And um, I told her, uh, wherever the words came from anyway, they came. And I always think of words at a deathbed are like you're creating a little raft of words for the person to move across to the further shore. So I talked about her memories. I told her there'd be a smile on the face of God as he welcomed her home, that she wasn't going anywhere distant, that heaven was here around us, that she'd always be close to her three children and her husband, and she'd always be able to help them in secret and unseen ways, and they'd never be out of her sight, that there was no need for her to be afraid. And I talked and prayed with her for about 10 minutes. And then in a period of about 20 minutes, the terror and panic actually transformed itself into pure serenity and tranquility that was palpable in the room. I've never seen such a transformation. So I said to her, now you've done one of the most difficult things to do that you've ever done, which is to say goodbye to your family. She said, I'm well able for it. And I went out and I gathered them and I told them what I knew and they were in a terrible state. So I said that each of you go in and take 10 or 15 minutes with her and speak to her now because you will never have a chance again. And they all went in and did it. And then she was wheeled out at about 7.30 and she was dead by 10, as the doctor said. But it was an absolutely transformative thing for me because I'd always been afraid of dying. And when I saw how she went from blue terror to total sanctified tranquility, really, and, and, and serenity, it was an incredible experience for me and a huge gift from her to me. What a, what a lovely story. What a gift all the way around, though, because Absolutely. you gave her uh, such a gift as well. Yeah, the sweetheart. You were about to tell me, John, what, what led you away from the priesthood after a life of such experiences. 
I know, but I suppose the old system and myself always had trouble, like, and I was always out on the edge of it because I couldn't take ser clericalism seriously, really. And uh, I found that a lot of my positions were gaining indifference and intensity from the system. And then I suppose a new bishop came and um, he had, shall we say, a certain <laughs> intense dialectical kind of attitude towards me. And um, What does that mean? Well, that's kind of, I suppose, <laughs> cover language for <laughs> that there wasn't a huge amount of love coming towards me. <laughs> and um, chemical hesitancy, like he, he didn't like my style and he didn't like what I represented in my spirit. And gradually he shouldered me onto the hard shoulder and finally he shouldered me out and um, or put it in a way that I really had little choice. And uh, so I finally opted to resign. Do you miss it? I missed it hugely the first few months. What I missed most was saying Sunday Mass for people because I loved that. And I don't think uh, that anybody who hasn't been a priest can understand the des desolation of that kind of exclusion. Because when I said the Eucharist, I was totally within it. Like So, I mean, I really missed it the first few months. What was that like? What 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 was so magical about saying Mass for you? I think that the Eucharist is one of the totally underrated places in the world. I really believe it is one of the places where the veil opens completely between the visible and the invisible. It's actually the presence of heaven here on the altar stone on earth. And I think huge journeys happen in the Eucharist that we go into the eternal and the eternal comes into us. It's a most amazing event because it touches everyone in a place where they almost don't feel that they're being touched at all. And yet some huge transformation is going on. It's like a yeast at the beginning of the week on Sunday that's put into the quickening ground of the soul. And all during the week without you even realizing it, it's quickening your responses, your healing, your openness, your vulnerability and your beauty. I think if we could visually see what goes on in the Eucharist, and if we could see a church when the Eucharist is going on, that we'd see rays and bridges of light coming out and going to through all kinds of distances into all kinds of areas of desolation, bringing huge consolation and, and to each individual who's there as well. I'm thinking damn, why is this man not still a priest? <laughs> you, you should <laughs> be goes. a priest. Well, I'm, I look at myself still as a priest, you know what I mean? In, but I'm not practicing publicly. But ah. I mean, I, I pray away and I try to, um, to stay close to the old great spirit. Mm. You, you have written about what you call a massive spiritual hunger in our times. Mm -hmm. What do you think that hunger is about? Well, maybe before we go into that question, I might read a poem. Certainly. And this is a poem because I think all blessings are, in a way, responses to hunger. And this is a poem called Banacht, and Banacht is the Gaelic word for blessing. I love and this. Is this the one you wrote for your mum? That's right. For and Josie. And there's another word, karak, in it, and a karak is a canoe. So I'd like to read this for all our listeners and for absent friends as well. Banacht. On the day when the weight deadens on your shoulders and you stumble, may the clay dance to balance you. And when your eyes freeze behind the grey window and the ghost of loss gets into you, 
may a flock of colours, indigo, red, green, and azure blue, come to awaken in you a meadow of delight. When the canvas frays in the curragh of thought, and a stain of ocean blackens beneath you, may there come across the waters a path of yellow moonlight to bring you safely home. May the nourishment of the earth be yours, may the clarity of light be yours, may the fluency of the ocean be yours, may the protection of the ancestors be yours, and so may a slow wind work these words of love around you, an invisible cloak to mind your life. Oh, okay, no, I, I don't want you to be a priest. I want you to be a poet. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. You were going to tell me about spiritual hunger. I think there is a huge spiritual hunger, I think particularly in America and Canada. And I think spiritual hunger has to do with the deeper longings of the soul and the spirit and the mind. I think we live in a culture which is saturated by consumerist kind of anesthetic, really to calm down the stress and the spirit. I mean, I think nine is seven out of every 10 people who comes into a doctor's surgery are suffering from some stress-related illness. And there are many psychological tomes on stress, but philosophically, stress is a perverted relationship to time. It's when you've become a victim of time, a target of time, and you've allowed your precious time, which is full of eternal lineaments, that you have allowed it to be reduced to routine. And I think that um, I think there's a huge loneliness in the modern spirit, despite all our cyber connections and our email and mobile phones and cyberspace and everything. I think there's a huge old lonesomeness that's all over the place, because if humans are very like creatures of the earth, like we forget that we are, but the, all creatures of the earth need a certain stillness a certain solitude and a certain silence. And if they don't have it, they become unrhythmic and chaotic. And that's what hap it's, it's happening to so many of us. And so I think there's a huge desperation there for things of the spirit. I think the danger is in our times that a lot of that hunger will go towards fundamentalism and its false nostalgia and its falsity or else that it will go towards further and further greed and avarice. I really think that there's something eternal going on behind every human face and that sooner or later you have to tangle with it. And uh, that a lot of people completely opt out of the God quest because they're so disappointed with religion. But even when I was informally in religion, I used to say to people, you should never allow an institution or anyone else to intrude on the intimate space between you and your creator. That's a very special sacred space. And I really believe that a relationship and the awakening of the divinity within us is something that's absolutely amazing. I mean, somebody that I love is the 13th century mystic Meister Eckhart. I'm writing a postdoctoral thesis on him, actually, with the University of Tübingen in Germany. And he said an amazing thing in one of his Latin writings. He said, there is a place in the soul that neither time nor flesh nor any created thing can ever touch. So that means like that there is a place within you where no one has ever got to you 
where you're not damaged or where there's no negativity in you, but where there is a pure tranquility within you. And I think that's very important to say to people that you don't need gurus. You don't need so much outside stuff. If you withdraw into your inner sanctuary, you will find everything that you need. Because in our times, what happens an awful lot, particularly in America, I find, is that people reduce identity to biography. So you are what has happened to you. What Meister Eckhart is saying is that there is an amazing region within you that is divine and that nothing that has ever happened to you has tarnished or damaged it and that you have within yourself your own chapel, your own sanctuary and you can go in there for refreshment, healing and renewal. And the day that you believe that and waken up to that is an amazing day in your life. There's a friend of mine at the moment who's incredibly ill with her heart and uh, is on the edge of death every second, third day. And she was going through massive desolation last week and uh, wrote me this uh, message of just complete darkness and desolation. And I, 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 I talked to her and I wrote back to her and I told her, you know, there's also within you this zone of beauty, of refreshment and light and healing. And uh, if you choose not to see it, you will be in terrible desperation. But if you waken up to it, my God, it'll make everything possible. And within two days, she had released herself from the prison of marooned desperation and had come to the well of refreshment and light. And now she's able to face the fear and face everything. It's amazing how we are the custodians of our own greatest treasures. And sometimes we are so mean to ourselves. And yet to, to so many people, the spiritual path or the spiritual life seems to be a quest out there. We are looking out there to find something. But that's something, one of the great some... lies is that this constant stretching and straining of human longing beyond itself is one of the great falsities. I mean, Augustine said it like, Deus in Timur and Timeo Meo, there is nothing as intimate, intimate to me as God. I mean, Plato said it too, that the most uh, wonderful privilege and the greatest gift you can give anybody is to become midwife to the birth of the soul in another person. You suggest, John, in some of your writing that this is a strange time for spiritual hunger in a way because this is an age that can't abide mystery. We cannot easily exist with not knowing. What are the implications of that? What does that mean to this spiritual hunger we're talking about? I actually think that it's a time when the intensity and opaqueness and beauty of mystery is being revealed more and more. I mean, if you look at the new physics and look at somebody like Richard Feynman and his amazing, amazing theories about matter. I mean, you look at Estonia, consider a stone the deadest thing you ever saw. And uh, Feynman talks about ghosts inside the stone, ghosts of spirit, and all the activity that's going on within something that looks so dead. So I think that uh, the actual depth of mystery is increasing all the time. But I think that culture in its more superficial form and its co more commercial and market orientation form has a huge superficial banality that's driven 
by market forces. And I think that at that level, like, that things are reduced just to ciphers and caricature. If you look at, uh, we'll say, the whole cosmetic industry, I mean, I always must laugh when I hear the L'Oreal ads and Andy McDowell, one of these people, is kind of just flinging her hair back over her shoulder saying, <laughs> L'Oreal, because you're worth it. It's almost like an existential <laughs> statement, you know. <laughs> and uh, it's, of course, it, all it means is just buy L'Oreal. That's what we want you to do. And I mean, it's it's again in my latest book, Beauty, the Invisible Embrace. Yeah. I've tried to advert to that distinction, the distinction between glamour and beauty. That glamour is that external kind of image driven thing. Uh, you know, it's brought out beautifully by Dennis Dunahoo in his book, The Sovereign Ghost, about the imagination, where he's talking about two lines of poetry that are, according to him, are illustrations of fancy, not imagination. And Dennis says, the only the first effect these two lines has will be the only effect they will ever have. No amount of pondering will make them glow. And that's what I think huh. beauty is. I think real beauty is where you're invited to ponder and where the substance and the mystery that's there continues to glow more and more. There's a friend of mine who has a gallery in Galway in the west of Ireland, and he told me this story. There was this exhibition on in this man's gallery, and a poet of no small renown came in to look at the exhibition. And he spent an hour and looked at it. And just as he was about to leave, this small farmer came in. And the farmer lived on the shores of Loch Corrib in the west of Ireland, and he usually treated himself to one visit to this gallery every year. But he, it happened to coincide with the exhibition and with the poet being there. So the gallery owner, Tom, introduced the poet to the farmer. And the poet took the farmer around and showed him the exhibition again and showed him all kinds of hidden things in the paintings. And it went on for an hour. Then as they were finished, the they were both at the door and the farmer thanked the poet and he said, my God, you have such a wonderful eye, he said. You showed me things in them paintings, he said, that I would never have seen myself. And he said, uh, you have an amazing gift. You have an amazing eye. He said, I don't have that gift, he said, but I have Tanalock. And the poet and the gallery owner says, what is Tanalock? Because uh, they'd never heard the word before. Neither had I until I heard the story. So they said, what's Tanalock? Well, he said, I live on the shores of Loch Carib. And he said, um, you always hear the rousing of the water on the stones and the wind on the water. Everyone hears that. But he said on certain still days, when it's absolutely silent, he said, I am able to hear the secret music that the mountains make on the surface of the lake. Mm. And then he went away and the poet said goodbye to him. And about two weeks later, the local teacher from that area was in to the gallery. And Tom said to him, he told him the story and he said, did you ever see the word Tanalak written down? And the teacher says, no, but it's a word they have up there at that, in that place where that man lives. And the gallery owner said, what does Tanalak mean? And he said, I don't know what it means, he said. I suppose it means awareness. But he said, in truth, it's about seven layers deeper than that. Oh. I think that's an amazing story. Yes. Your first book, John, Anamkara, uh, a bestseller all around the world, being the Irish phrase for soul friend. And I'm, I'm very intrigued by this notion of yours that friendship is a kind of shelter. It is something that settles down the primal restlessness in us. I want to hear more about this primal restlessness in the human being. What do you, what do well, you mean? Well, I think it's there. I think every human being is haunted in some way. Like uh, if you walk through a big city and you watch the faces, 
you see what you see are different levels of haunting. And sometimes the most haunted people of all are those who hide it best. But it's lovely. I always think that that's one of the lovely things about uh, love and belonging with someone else is that you actually have a safe space to show who you really are and that you're not judged for it. Aristotle, who wrote one of the most beautiful things about friendship in his Nicomachean Ethics, says, if you could choose to have all the wonderful things in the world, but not to have friends, you would not choose them. Because friendship is a hugely important thing. The way I put it as this, Mary, is that the hallmark or the recognition place of human individuality is the human face. When we see a person, we recognize them because we recognize their face. Your face is the small exposure space where it's your unpublished, if you like, but public biography. It's once you, you Wait, have say, a face. Say you, that again. Your unpublished but, but public, public biography. biography. Because oh, once you have a face, you can never hide successfully. Because uh, if you uh, look at a person's face, you will see what they're doing to themselves. You'll be able to glimpse it or what life is doing to them or has visited upon them. And the amazing thing about a human face is that no individual has ever seen their own face. I mean, I find, I find that such an incredibly telling thing about us. Well, we look in the mirror. Yeah, but mirrors are notorious. Like some mirrors are sadistic. I mean, what they throw back at you, you'd want to put on a burqa or else go for four years of L'Oreal. Or then some mirrors are too kind and what they throw back at you would almost lead you to believe that you should be having a lot more notoriety than you're having. So we've never actually seen our own face. All we've seen are images of it. And I often think that friendship in a way and love are the places where you are mirrored back to yourself in your fragility, vulnerability, beauty and potential. Everyone needs a friend. Everyone needs somebody. I remember one time in a little infant's class in Ireland in the National School I went in, we were talking about God and love. And I said, what's all this love about? Like, why is love so nice? And one little seven-year-old put up her hand and says, because it makes you feel so special. And she was absolutely right. Like, in some sense, friendship is the place where the true nature of your individuality actually can shine forth. And everyone needs that kind of a space. Everyone needs someone they can depend on who understands them. I always think where you're understood, that's where you're truly at home. And in Anamkara, Wisdom from the Celtic World, what I tried to do was to show how the Celtic notion of Anamkara, Anam is the word for soul and Kara is the word for friend, that this idea of soul friendship was that in some way, an affinity and a kinship awoke, awakes between you and someone else. And then you're joined with this friend of your soul in an eternal kind of way. And uh, it's almost as if the old creator who created us only made us half and that we're completed in the embrace and love of uh, of a friend. Plato has that in the symposium. He says that originally humans were two in one and then we got separated and that you spend all your life looking for your other half. And when you find someone who loves you, it's one of the most amazing and beautiful things in the world. There's a little poem that I have here called Nest, which is a love poem about that. And it, it probably illustrates it. Nest. I awaken to find your head loaded with sleep, branching my chest. Feel the streams of your breathing dream through my heart. 
From the new day light glimpses the nape of your neck. Tender is the weight of your sleeping thought and all the worlds that will come back when you raise your head and look. Thank you. We we just mentioned in passing your new book. In fact, I had to get it shipped up from the States. I'm not even sure that beauty is available in Canada yet, but uh -huh. I'm sure it's coming soon. And you quote a line of Pascal's in Beauty, keep something beautiful in your heart. And I'm, I'm wondering how you take that advice. What do you keep in your heart when you take Blaise Pascal's advice? Well, I keep the countenances of those that I love in my heart. I keep the faces of the landscapes that I love in my heart. And I keep moments when I was loved or shown great kindness or tenderness. I also keep moments of great beauty from poetry, from music, from literature and from painting in my heart. For instance, about uh, five or six weeks ago, I was in a little pub in Clonbar in, in uh, Galway in the west of Ireland. And I saw a beautiful painting of five red poppies uh, painted inside a white frame uh, and it was for sale. And I did a deal with the barman and I bought it. And I have it now in the lake room in my house where my desk faces the lake and where I write. And every time that I rise up from my desk to go into the kitchen to make tea or whatever, and I look at them, five poppies in that painting, it lifts my heart and gives me a real kind of a charge. I think it's very important to do that because I think that an awful lot of the time we spend these days in our lives are in places we don't want to be, doing things we don't want to be, and sometimes with coarseness and vulgarity. And I think in order not to let the tender tissues of your sensibility and imagination become coarsened or numbed, that we need to visit some beautiful things that we have within us. I mean, there's a, there's a line in the prophet Haggai in the Old Testament that I always loved. And it says, the Lord is saying to him, you have sown so much but reaped so little. And I think one of the totally underused faculties that humans, every human has, is our memory. Nowadays, because of all the horrors of abuse and that, we associate memory with bad memory. But it's not all bad memory. And everyone has lovely memories. I mean, to go back to my idea of transience, like, the thing that has always haunted me is, why does everything pass? The question for me philosophically, the most fascinating question is, is there a place where our vanished days secretly gather? I think there is. And I think the name of that place is memory. And I think that uh, you can go back to the archive of your memory and there are harvests of secret, aesthetic and spiritual and imaginative nourishment there. This brings me to something you say quite forcefully in the book Beauty, that we tend to think of the beautiful as being a frill or an optional extra, or that it's naive to think of beauty as something important, particularly in this day and age where, you know, there's a lot of fear, there is a lot of tension. And I, I love your argument that no, beauty has never been more important than it is now. Tell me more. I think it's absolutely vital. I think in a way, I say in the introduction to the, to the beauty book that in a way, uh, the global crisis and many of its elements can be reduced to a crisis about beauty. I think, for instance, the rape of nature and the destruction of our world is because we don't see the beauty of nature. You could not damage something that you considered and saw as truly beautiful. Secondly, I think that the 
awful vulgarity of so much modern architecture creates spaces where it's horrible for human beings to be kind of contained. I also think that in religion, that a lot of what's happened in religion and the, one of the reasons for the huge crisis is you have the reduction of the mystical flame of religion to just moralistic kind of functionalism and the great fire and beauty of the divine is got is forgotten in favour of just prescriptions, obligations and empty kind of cliches. I mean, Hans Urs von Balthasar, the great theologian at the end of the last century, said that beauty was the word without which the ancient world refused to understand itself. And I think a life without beauty is unbearable. And I mean, people always consider beauty, you see, to be a luxury thing, but I think it's not. I think it's a total necessity. We're all the time looking for beauty because we desperately need it. Not alone that, but I believe that many of the great human beings who hold out on the most severe terrains of oppression and uh, impoverishment and horror do so because every so often they get some glimpse of beauty and it holds them together and holds their hearts full of courage. People say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That means you could consider something really ugly and I could consider it beautiful. But I think that maybe there's another way of reading that phrase which says that if you make your gaze beautiful then the beauty will come to meet it. I mean people say we're made in the image and likeness of God but the way I put it myself is that we're made in the image and likeness of the divine imagination. So every time that you're really imaginative or that you're creative or that you bring something new to birth then you're in the place of ultimate kind of holiness. You know, St. John of the Cross said, I asked my heart what it really desired and it was the heart of all my desires and that was to discover beauty. So I think beauty is a complete necessity. There's beautiful stuff too that I've quoted in the book from Plotinus uh, who wrote the famous book The Aeneids in the second or third century and he talks about the inner beauty of the soul and uh, I mean, I think everyone has a special beauty. We're not all uh, from the outside in terms of physical glamour or visual beauty, um, totally symmetrical and perfectly formed. But there is a grace and elegance and dignity in every human being, which if we could become aware of, would alter the way we walk the way we touch things, and the way we hold ourselves. You used the beautiful phrase a minute ago, make your gaze beautiful. You know, this sounds like a cliche, but it's it's like many cliches. We've heard it so often that it's easy to ignore the wisdom there. You, you write about the way you look at things is the most powerful force in shaping your life. How have you found that to be true in your own life? Well, I, I believe that that is absolutely true. I mean, I think everyone lives in at least two worlds. We live in the social world where your name is Mary and you work on the radio and you do this, that and the other and people know and say, hi, Mary. But then there's the whole interior world of Mary that nobody knows anything about, only Mary. No, I'm and not those, sure Mary knows it either. <laughs> well, that's right. You see, there's loads of it that Mary doesn't know either. But she, those to whom she chooses to tell that will know a little more of it. And I think that everything depends on the lens through which you see things. I mean, if you look out at the world in a negative, embittered way, you will gain loads and loads of evidence and affirmation for that bitterness. If you look out at the world in a paranoid way, 
there'll be nobody that can disprove it. So everything depends on the way you look at things and the way you see them imaginatively, you see. And people all the time want to change, like so they change their lovers or their partners or the place they live or the work they do. I've seen people who've changed everything that you could possibly change. Mm. And what all they ended up was becoming more like they were before. Because I think that the greatest force for change and true transformation happens when you actually change your mind. There's a friend of mine who's a school in the west of Ireland and he has as a motto for that school, the mind altering alters all. And I think, you know, people spend a lot of money on their bodies. They spend a lot of money in their homes. Da, da, da. I think it's worth spending time and money on your thinking and on reading good material and starting to do a little bit of philosophy and read some poetry and clean up and intensify and complicate your language a bit. And in that way, you'll actually begin to look at the way you think. I mean, I think a great exercise for somebody, if there's anybody listening to this now who wants to do a bit of work on their thinking, is to sit down some evening with your diary and try to write out you're six. If somebody was to kidnap you, some intellectual terrorist, and say, I'm not going to release you until you tell me the six things that you think that affect everything that you do. So in other words, to try to come down to see what do you actually think and what do you believe? And to see why have you chosen that way of thinking, what you're avoiding by doing that, what you're leaving out, and what you're depriving yourself of. I mean, I think there's huge work to be done there. You have a poem, John, called November Questions. Would you read it for us? Absolutely. This is a poem about the death of my uncle Pete. And um, it's all the imagery from his life. November Questions. Where did you go when your eyes closed and you were cloaked in the ancient cold? How did we seem huddled around the hospital bed did we loom as figures do in dream? As your skin drained became Valium, a splinter of white horn from your battle with a bush in the Shanagaree stood out in your thumb. Did your new feet take you beyond to fields of Elysia, or did you come back along Carabana Mountain where every rock knows your step? Did you have to go to a place unknown, where their friendly faces to welcome you, help you settle in? Did you recognise anyone? Did it take long to lose the web of scent, the honey smell of old hay, the whiff of wild mint, and the wet odour of the earth you turned every spring? Did sounds become unlinked? The bellow of cows let into fresh wintage, the purr of a stray breeze over the Kyleen, the ring of the galvanised bucket that fed the hens, the clink of limestone loose over a scalp and the carcon. Did you miss the delight of your gaze at the end of a day's work over a black garden a new wall or a field cleared of rock? Have you someone there that you can talk to? Someone who is drawn to the life you carry? With your new eyes, can you see from within? Is it we who seem outside? 
November questions. I love that last line. You just, you really catch the listener with, is it we who seem outside? Yeah, because I think, you know, that in probability that death is a completely different perspective. You know, I think we don't understand death at all. I mean, one of the great privileges of being a priest was the privilege of being invited to help people over that threshold towards death. And uh, I often think it's like Wittgenstein says, says, you know, the great philosopher, he said, death is not an event in your life. Your death is not an event in your life. And he's right, of course, because every other event in your life has subsequence. It has an aftermath, but death has none. It's the last act. And um, this is a kind of uh, model that I use for myself in trying to understand death. Say if you were to interview a baby in the womb before it's born, and say it was a real, withered, sophisticated baby, and the baby said to you, hey, what's going down? And you said, you want to know? Okay, here it goes. Firstly, in a little while, you're going to be expelled from the womb in which you've sheltered and where you've formed. Secondly, you're going to be pushed along a very narrow passage where you'll feel you're being smothered in every moment. Thirdly, you're going to land out into a huge emptiness with searing white lights. Fourthly, the cord that connects you to the mother heart is going to be cut. No matter how close you ever come to anyone afterwards, you will always be on your own. Fifthly, you're going on a journey for which there are no maps and anything can happen to you on the way. Sixthly, you can't get back off the journey. Now, if the child, if the baby was anyway sophisticated, it would have to conclude that it was probably going to die and this was going to be horrible. Where in actual fact, what's happening is the baby is about to be born into the mystery and beauty and endless invitation of the world. And maybe it's the same way with death, you know. Maybe death is a rebirth and that we're being born anew into an amazing kind of world. I often, the question that always used to haunt me is, why do people die when they die? I remember the Lord to mercy in my father when he died. And I tell the story at the beginning of the beauty book. I came home from university and uh, he was by the fire and he stood up to greet me. And when he looked at me, I knew that death had chosen his name. And in three weeks he was dead and gone. And I remember a friend of mine had visited him some months before that. And she told me after his death that she knew he was going to die. And I said, how did you know? And she said, when he looked into my eyes, she said, and I looked into his, I knew that he had nothing more to learn in the world. So I often wonder if we die when we're actually fully born, because I think the human heart is never finally born, but we're being birthed all the time. And so that after death, like the afterlife, Meister Eckhart was asked, you know, where does the soul of a person go when the person dies? And he came up with the ingenious answer and he said no place as they'd say in Dublin where would you be going like because heaven and the eternal are actually here and now so I believe that our nearest neighbours are the dead and that they're all around us and that one of the amazing things we will become to understand when we enter that world is the huge shelter and sustenance and encouragement and support and help that the dead give us every day of our lives and we never even think of them. Like I'm convinced that often on our path as we walk in the world, that overhead us where we can't see, that there are huge boulders of misery ready to fall upon us and that our friends among the dead hold them back until we have passed safely beneath. I think always in my in my experience now my father and my uncle are dead and a couple of more close friends of mine and uh, when I'm in trouble I always pray to them and ask their help and I'm never let down. 
this reminds me of this lovely line of yours that we should pray to the dead, not just for them, because their their guidance is probably better than anyone's. You've found that to be true in your own life? Absolutely. And and you always kind of get assistance from them, you see, because the thing about humans is that um, we constantly think that the invisible is empty-like. And that there's nothing there. There's a lovely story which uh, Robert Bly, the great Robert, tells. It's an African story, but I think it's so beautiful. It's a story about this African farmer who had cows. And there were great cows and gave great milk. And he began to notice that the cows, the supply of milk was lessening. So he stayed up one night and he watched to see who was stealing the milk from his cows. And the next thing overhead the cows, he saw the stars and everything. But then one star got brighter and larger and came down to earth and in, in a column of light. And this beautiful woman stepped out of it. And he said to her, have you been stealing the milk from my cows? And she said, my sisters and I love your cow's milk and we have been taking it. He said, you're very beautiful. Would you marry me? I'll be good to you. I won't hit you and you won't have to mind the cows all the time. She looked at him and she said, on one condition. He said, what's the condition? She said, "If you, pr- I have a basket with me, she said. And if you promise never, ever, ever to look into the basket, he said, I promise absolutely. So he did. They were together, married for six months and everything was really happy. And one day she was out minding the cows out in the fields and he noticed the basket on the corner of the house and he said my god I wonder what's in the basket and then he said well she is my wife so it could be considered to be my basket and he said it is in my house after all and the next thing he went over to the corner and he opened the basket and when he opened the basket he started dancing around laughing and shouting at the top of his voice there's nothing in the basket nothing 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 there's absolutely nothing in the basket nothing in the basket she was blowing the fields and she heard all the commotion she came up towards the house she walked in and she said you've opened the basket and he was laughing and dancing and shouting there's nothing absolutely nothing in the basket she said I have to go now he said please don't leave me she said I have to go she said because what I brought with me in the basket was spirit but it's so like human beings to think that spirit is nothing and she was gone how do you picture the life to come I love this thought of yours that that it is much 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 closer to us than we can possibly realize Well, I think that you see everything, as Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, showed, everything in human life is mediated through time and space. And they are also the forces that divide us from everything else. Like, for instance, now I'm here in this continent and I'm four or five thousand miles away from Connemara from my home. So that's huge distance. Then, like when I was a child, it's 40 years something from now. So there's huge distance in time as well. So time and space separates all the time. And I think that one of the amazing things that could be true in the eternal world is that maybe the time and space don't dominate anymore so that all time is present simultaneously and all space is closed or the way I like to put it is there's no distance in spiritual space. I heard a famous theologian being interviewed one time and the interviewer asked him, what does eternal life mean? And he said, eternal life means that I will see my father and mother again and all those that I loved. And I think that's true. I mean, I think that is one of the requirements of a view of the eternal life, namely that we will continue and that our personal identity will be preserved. 
and that we won't just dissipate as anonymous energy into trees or stones or something. I mean, I'm great friends with a couple of trees, but I'd certainly <laughs> rather hang with spirits and with people than go hanging with the trees, you know? <laughs> so I think that there will be a preserved but transfigured personal identity and that we will be close to all those that we know and have known and that we will be together with them again. John O'Donoghue, I have wanted for so long to interview you. I, I, this has been such a pleasure. I'm so delighted. Can I finish with one short four-line poem? I would love it. Thank you, Mary, for a lovely conversation. This is a poem that sums up everything I've been saying. The poem is called Fluent. I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. John O'Donoghue, thank you so much. Thank you, Mary. Goodbye. God bless you. You've been listening to an interview with the late John O'Donoghue, the Irish poet, and for a time, a priest. This episode was originally broadcast in November 2004. It was produced by Susan Mahoney and Marika Mayer. Technical production by Dave Field. That's it for us this week. Tapestry is produced by Armand Egbali and McKenna Hadley-Burke. The senior producer is Rosie Fernandez. I'm Mary Hines. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.